Hey yo, what's up everybody? This is the Firecracker, straight from Atlanta, Georgia. This is a little verse I put together for the Dopey Nation. I kept it short for Dave. Yo man, this don't matter if you're sober or you're high. As long as you're in that, in that fight, man. We all feel you, we know where you've been. We've been there, we are there, we love you. Yeah, a little verse, you know what I'm saying, for the dopey. Stay strong, uh, yo. 16, right here, yo. Huh, this is the firecracker. I'm reporting to you live. Doesn't matter if you're sober or just sorta getting high. This is a message filled with hope and patience. I hope you make it. Being sober is amazing. Shout out to the dopey nation. Can't give out my whole location. Hashtag anonymous. I'm in the depths of 12 steps. Searching for the promises. Tomorrow is a vision. Why is it so blurry? I'ma find my way home. I'ma don't worry to the ones still lost. Please take this as a warning. Got sober so I'm dry. But outside is still storming. Every relapse from a weed sack. I'm stepping like my knee steps. Pray that I get this, I forget this, I don't need that I see that, I need to say goodbye to my party days Mostly fun and partly pain, word up to Artie Lang Stay strong Dave, keep carrying the message From New York to Georgia, you are such a fucking blessing Can't forget Chris when I scribble down these doodles We miss you homie, R.I.P. fucking toodles Yeah, firecracker, you know what I mean? A little bit of dope, yeah, dopey nation Uh, uh, yeah this episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake, and somewhere in Western Los Angeles. Oro was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission was to create a treatment center that treats alcoholics and addicts with compassion and connection rather than control, which is an amazing mission, which they are accomplishing. They have staff with decades and decades of experience in treating drug addiction and alcoholism and co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They make sure that your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is awesome. We all like a comfortable detox. Their amenities are unbelievable. You wouldn't believe it. Fucking sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I've only heard great things and I cannot suggest Oro enough. So this episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Sober Buddy, an amazing app that is incredibly available to you if you need some help getting or staying sober. It's the little blue fluffy guy you may have seen in sober memes on Instagram or Facebook. I love the Sober Buddy app because it not only gives you challenges that help you get sober, it helps you think differently about your life, which is critical. It has a sober tracker down to the second, daily check-ins that give you advice based upon your mood, cute motivational memes, and helpful tips too. Over 60,000 people have already used Sober Buddy to help them get sober, and they have been featured in over 70 news stories. The Sober Buddy app is available in both the iTunes and Google Play stores, or you can check out their website at YourSoberBuddy.com. All right, you guys, I want to tell you about an amazing podcast called Recovery in the Middle Ages. It is all about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. 
Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, alt-recovery, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages on all of the podcast platforms out there and check them out at middleagesrecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Evolution Accounting and Consulting. It is a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, payroll, and almost any other business need you may have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. And perhaps most important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Yes. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now and knows the struggle as well as the success. Use promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. It's www.evolution-accounting.com. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I hope everybody is doing well. It is uh, it's Thursday night, the night before the episode comes out, and I'm recording it in the Dopey sort of set place, which is always nice. Um, there's a lot of stuff to tell you guys, but the first thing I want to talk about is uh, all the people that we've sent to treatment in the last couple of years. Justin Cambria has set it up. And uh, I want to shout out to all these. I mean, we sent like 30 people to treatment. Here are a few of the places that we've sent people to. We sent people to Turnbridge in New Haven, the last resort in Austin, Texas. Uh, Arit or Eriti Recovery in Palm Beach. Ashley Addiction Treatment in Havre de Grace, Havre de Grace, Maryland, Lakeview Health in Jacksonville, Florida. And that's just a small sampling of the incredible consortium of rehabs coming together to help the people in the Dopey Nation. So let's just take yes. Listen, Justin, we thank you. If anyone out there needs help, please write me uh, at dopeypodcast at gmail.com or write me at Instagram or whatever. And, uh, and we will see if we can get you a spot because, um, I don't like to consider dopey a recovery podcast, even though it probably is one, but we do like to help people recover, right? I mean, it's a good deal. Some dopey nation news. There's a woman called lovely may. I'm not going to say her, uh, last name. She has a year clean, I think this week. So, all right. That's pretty sweet. Lovely May. Congratulations. And then I saw something else in Dopey Nation that I decided to read, 
which is uh, it was a post that said this. Hi, Dopey Nation. Help. I know some of you must have done this. I'm going cold, tur- cold turkey from clonazepam. No other choice for now. Can you suggest anything that can help? I've been on approximately two milligrams a day for 10 years. No sleep for three nights. Right now, I'm listening to podcast after podcast of Dopey, which is awesome. I have to thank you. I like that. Um, it's truly the only positive thing getting me through this insomnia, headache, and ringing ears. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Now, <laughs> it's like I think she got 50 comments to this post. I'm not going to say her name. And like I'd say 30 of them were. You can't detox benzos on your own because it could kill you. Uh, and it's true. As anyone who's been to detox or rehab knows, the only kicks, the only like withdrawals that can kill you are from benzos and alcohol. So if you're kicking benzos at home, we suggest going and getting help. But as someone also commented in there, coming off of two milligrams might not be as dangerous, but we are not medical professionals. So we err on the side of caution. If you're kicking benzos, um, go someplace or break up the pills every day. So every day you're putting the tiniest bit in you, but still go someplace. And, uh, and we wish you luck. And I'm super happy that Dopey kept you company through a kick. I think that is incredible. It blows me away. In fact, I wonder how many people actually have gone through some kind of withdrawal and listened to Dopey at the same time. So if you have had that experience, please send in an email or a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And in other Benzo news, you know how like our cat is a horrible cat and she sprays everything? And uh, we medicated her with Prozac, but she always gagged up the Prozac and she would foam at the mouth. So we stopped giving her the Prozac, but she still sprays everything. And, uh, yes, she's a girl and yes, she's, she's spayed. And yes, she still sprays everything. It's like hell. And I don't know how it happened. (laughs) It's really weird. Linda said to the vet, um, what about Xanax? Do you think we can give the cat Xanax and the cat, or I'm sorry, the vet was like, sure. So the vet writes Linda a script for liquid Xanax and she, she just filled the script. And now we have this bottle of liquid Xanax and we uh, medicated the cat tonight. And it's just crazy. And I I don't, you know, someone once wrote in, I, I was talking to Ray on the show about a spot that seemed like a dope spot in Manhattan and, and a dopey nation person went and actually cop dope there. So like, I'm not suggesting anyone, get liquid Xanax from their veterinarians. And I'm suggesting not to do that, but that's a crazy experience. And the cat doesn't seem affected by the Xanax. And now we have this bottle of liquid Xanax and I'm not tempted at all. Just so we're clear. I am not tempted by the liquid Xanax at all. I just think it's, it's insane that it's, it was so easy to get it, but it was expensive. It was a hundred bucks and it was, and it's this giant bottle. The whole thing is absurd. The whole thing is fucking ridiculous. I am incredibly excited for our guest today. His name is Ryan Hampton. We've been circling each other through the the Dopey universe. But before we get to Ryan Hampton, I wanted to remind you guys about Dopey Patreon. It, it is so incredibly helpful when you guys join Patreon. It is a step closer to me 
not working in the deli and making dopey full time, which means there's more dopey potentially out there if you join Patreon, not to mention all the incredible stuff on Patreon right now. Join up for five bucks. You can go to the Patreon Zoom, join up for less, just get the post, join up for more, get socks, so many things you can do. Uh, also, please uh, buy Dopey merch. It's available at dopeypodcast.com. Also, subscribe to Dopey YouTube. It's free, and there's so much stuff. We're slaving over these cameras all the time. Join Dopey YouTube. Just subscribe. Go to YouTube right now. Hit subscribe. Also, we've got the candles. I'll tell you about the candles after Ryan, though. He's an author. He's an activist. He's an advocate. But most importantly, he's a he's an opioid addict. He's a person in recovery. His first book was called American Fix, and his new book is called Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis. I'm sure you can imagine what that's about. Here he is, Ryan Hampton. We've been trying to do this for a long, for years, I think we've been yeah. messaging and then talking and talking more. It is Ryan Hampton. He's an activist. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's a community galvanizer. But he's, he, I feel bad for him because he's in my dad's kitchen on the day that he has a quote in the New York Times and there's all this shit. And it's like, the, and you're on Dopey today. Welcome to the show. I wouldn't, it's so good to be here to do an in person podcast. A, to be in your dad's kitchen is amazing because it's a really cool kitchen. But yeah, it's a hell of a day. And, uh, it is good to be here on Dopey. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And I'm all into the nitty gritty. It's like, and I think stories like yours or mine, but mostly yours, it's like if you go from a normal, productive person in the world, and also I think it's interesting because like I wanted to be in production before I was a horrible drug addict, and then I wound up coming out of addiction and I'm doing this podcast. You were really interested in politics and community organizing and all this stuff and then you became a horrible addict and you came out of it and you got to do it and i think that's a cool parallel yeah i mean it is a cool parallel i i like to tell people you know during my addiction which is like a decade you know in in span i mean homelessness heroin addiction overdoses all that <laughs> like that that's not really who i was you know, I mean, the addiction pretty much took over. My brain got hijacked. I mean, I know a lot more about the disease of addiction today. Your brain was hijacked. But here's the question. Because, like, yeah, you weren't, like, we aren't that the worst of us, but we're both, aren't we? Yeah, I think, you know, we're in the reality in the moment, right? The reality in the moment was life was awful and I wanted to die and, like, kill myself, right? And I was doing awful things. Um you know, that wasn't always my story, though. And I did, I mean, like you, I did kind of have this up and coming career. I mean, I worked in the White House, right? I know. I, I, I worked for um, former President Clinton at the tail end of his administration. I had this like huge up and coming career working in politics. I worked, I was a, a senior staffer at the Democratic National Committee for the 2004 presidential campaign. I had worked for the former attorney general of the United States and ran, helped run her campaign for Florida governor. And it was shortly after that, that I became like a total asshole. Well, <laughs> and I, well I kind of was always an asshole, but became an addict, you know, and, and life started to fall apart. But it, it, you know, I've told my story so many times and people are like, when was the moment 
when was the moment that you decided to like stick a needle in your arm and do what you did and and become an addict and there were several moments i think that led up to that I mean, clearly, like I fell in love with opiates, I fell in love with heroin, I fell in love with prescription medications. But, you know, looking back on my life, I think my propensity to, you know, go down that route probably started when I was like 14, 15, 16 years old, right? I mean, it was like a lot of things, a lot of circumstances in my life. I mean, things that I never really talked about openly and haven't even, didn't really even talk about in my book, you know, the, the, uh, survivor of like childhood sexual abuse, right? Uh, being closeted, being gay and closeted, right? And like growing up in the 90s was not an easy thing to do. I think that added to it. My father who went to federal prison when I was a teenager and family almost losing everything. I mean, there were circumstances I think that made it almost like the perfect setup that when I did get that prescription, I was searching for a lot more than just pain relief for my knee and my ankle. No, it's amazing. It's like uh, the amount of things that have to happen for somebody to be born, for somebody to become president, or for somebody to become a full-on drug addict. Yeah. It's a lot of fucking different things that have to happen. And uh, it's like one thing happens, another thing happens, and then all of a sudden it goes like this. For me, I was really, really, really interested in, um, in the the excitement and the the rebellion and I didn't I wasn't like that as a kid though it came to me later and and so by the time I was doing heroin there was a romance like there was a romance for me like a precursor reading Jack Kerouac or William Burroughs or it was like a, ro a romance of pushing the envelope yeah, yeah but and yeah. It, but, it, but it was and it was taking the beach an inch at a time did you was it like that for you like yeah. like Okay, so it was similar like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, like I, you know, people are like, how'd you get into politics so young? Like, how do you do what you do today? Well, when I was like 15 or 16, I mean, I pushed myself out there. I was doing motorcades, you know, when I didn't even have a driver's license for the president of the United States. And I was like putting myself in situations that gave me high dopamine levels, right? Sure. And, and excitement and almost escape, right? From everything that was going on at home. I, my first drug wasn't really heroin. My first drug was like politics. It was approval. excitement. It was approval. It was, you know, flashy things. It was, you know, being seen as something bigger than myself. Um, drugs though, when they came along provided all of that and more. In everything I know about your story, you weren't like a druggie. I mean, most kids that are in the political scene aren't druggies. Like right. that—that's not usually the thing. Usually, maybe a theater kid, maybe borderlines, or a musician. Yes, an athlete. Usually, it comes through an injury. You know what I mean? And these are just me being stereotypical. Well, right no, now. I mean, like I—I I dabbled in drugs, right? Like I dabbled in drugs my my junior and senior year of high school. I did a bunch of ecstasy, right? I drank, but I mean, it it that tailed off like it never turned into like full-blown addiction I, I did it like everybody else in my school was in in college i drank right but i drank like everybody else, all of my classmates i did a little bit of cocaine it never became was like, it ever in the back of your head like that there were you ever a stoner or no yeah a big time yeah yeah. What was your pot use like? I'm just curious. Oh God. I'm not formulating any kind of deep hypothesis. I mean, it, it wasn't, I mean, it was like two blunts a day, maybe. I mean, I wasn't, so you were a stoner. Then. I was a stoner, but I didn't 
really, I mean, it was like the end of the day. I, I didn't like the high from pot okay. as much, right? Like it, it, I, I never fell in love with it. I guess you could say I never fell in love with cocaine. I never fell in love with alcohol. I never fell in love with marijuana or speed or anything like that. I fell in love with heroin. I like had a true marriage and relationship with heroin. And I know you got to the heroin through an injury, yep. through uh, hydromorphone, yep. right? Yep. Th- into Dilaudid. Into yep. Dilaudid, into Florida, the yep. pill mills, all that stuff. And, and then the the filing system made it so they found you out and like how did you get to the heroin was it like was it instant i know i need heroin to no feel better? not at all i um and i don't want to skip any of that i just no. this is a question that's been on my yeah, mind all day so i how do you take someone from bill clinton's uh circle and become a heroin addict well let's walk through it i'll i'll, I'll, I'll give it to you really quick i you know it started with a prescription for me as you said i i had moved back to florida um, in, in 2003, after my father had passed away, uh, left my job in Washington, DC to go work on a, on a campaign down in Florida. And when I got down there, I still had this injury and went to my primary care physician and was like, Hey doc, I've got this injury. I'm on this medication. It's called hydromorphone also known as Dilaudid for, for your listeners. I didn't even know that hydromorphone was Dilaudid. Yeah, Dilaudid, Dilaudid was my first. And too. what you probably didn't know is it's also a Purdue Pharma product. I think I, I might have known that. In I didn't the back know that until I wrote my most recent book. <laughs> I had no idea, you know. And we're gonna get into the Sacklers and your your yeah. Sackler uh, affinity, your yeah. Sackler addiction. My Sackler addiction. My Sackler fetish. <laughs> you know, it's like it's, it's like, like it's like a new school royal royal oh fetish. God, but <laughs> I I I was on this medication. Doc was like my primary care said, hey, you know, I don't do this type of pain care. Um, but there's a bunch of doctors here in South Florida that do. And if you know anything about this overdose crisis we're in, um, and kind of the origins of it, you know, South Florida was just this breeding ground for these pill mills, these unscrupulous pill mills that companies like Purdue helped to prop up through promotions and incentives to, to, no, to let's doctors. Be, let's be real basic. Yeah. Here, Cause I was in South Florida 2003 okay i i went to south florida i was there for like a year and i would see on the strip malls pain you Mm. know do you need pills what is it what makes it a mill or is that just rhymes with pill it's just a pain clinic as you think of it's a pain clinic but it was literally a mill they were just churning people left and right to come through these places i mean when when i was in the thick of it in in that 2003 2004 time frame there were more of these pain specific uh, doctor uh, clinics than there were McDonald's or 7-Elevens combined in Broward County, Florida, which is where I where, where I was at. Um, there were pharmacies that were attached to these doctor's offices that only distributed narcotics. And they, it was funny though, because they, the DEA required them to keep some non-narcotic, in order to have their license, they couldn't have 100% narcotics. So they would have, you know, Oxycontin, Oxycodone, ADHD meds, Xanax, all scheduled narcotics. And then they would have like 30% of their stock would be like vitamin C. And so for like every prescription that I would get, 
They throw the, in some vitamin the C. The doctor would write a prescription for vitamin C, and in order to get my Oxycontin filled, I had to pay for this vitamin C it's prescription. It's like going to weed spots, and they made you buy incense or like a soda yeah. or a fruit punch or something. I mean, they would also prescribe colase, too, like, the, the you know, for the... Colon. Yeah. For colon, colon maintenance. Yeah, yes. so that you could, so, you know, because opiates have a, you know... Oh, yeah, that's a perfect... Yeah. That's a perfect... Yeah. I, I wish someone had given me colase. Yeah, then. so it's like, you need some colase, you need some vitamin C, and, like, you know, here's a ton of oxy. But these places were all over the place, and that's what I did. I went to one of these doctors, but unknowingly at the time, I didn't know what pill mills were. I. It sounds crazy in 2022 to think back and be like, I didn't really know what Oxycontin was. I didn't really know what roxycodone was. What I did know is it took away my pain and it made me feel great. Yeah. I also knew that it came in a little bottle with my name on it. And, and it was legal and, and nobody was, could take it away from me. And you. it was legal and nobody could take take away, you know, take it away from me. But I also wasn't um afraid to like let people know I was on it, right? Because like, again, you're coloring within the lines. You're not copying yeah. dope down no. the street. You know, you're doing something that somehow is legal now but i would keep the the pill bottle on my desk just to like look back in time and i remember colleagues of mine and even family members would be like hey can i get an oxy i have a headache and i'm like sure go ahead you know here it is it's like it's right here you know there was there was no question in anybody's mind that that this was a problem so i was receiving all these messages that like hey this is great like you feel great you know your pain's gone away it's socially acceptable. I mean, it's like people going and having a drink after work. They we would split a pill, you know. That is fascinating because yeah. I I didn't do it like that. I I, I did it by myself. Uh, I didn't have you know. I never did Roxy's, Oxy's. I got into benzos because some old man would give me benzos. But I got into heroin, and, and so I had to be kind of secreted away from most people. I would offer it to my friends before I became a total addict. But just imagining you in the office with pills and being like that is kind of this weird reverse anti-stigma thing because you're public about it so how right. bad could it be and you're having fun with it so when does it become well bad? It, i mean that lasted me using pre the prescriptions as prescribed lasted for about eight or nine months and then it got to a point where i needed more so there was an easy solution to that at the time because there was no tracking of people and what they were, how many, how many, you know, oxys they were getting. I just went and saw another, another doctor, spot. I found yeah. another doctor and another doctor and another doctor. And I got into doctor shopping. Um, and that got expensive very quickly. And my habit went up and my tolerance went up. And I eventually realized for the first moment I had a problem in 2004 when I was sitting at work and got dope sick for the first time. And I didn't know that it was, I, I, I still didn't put like two and two together that like this is addiction, you know, cause I was being told, hey, this happens, you get drug dependent and it's pseudo addiction and it feels like addiction, but it's not addiction. All things that we heard from the pharmaceutical companies in the early 2000s. Um, but my first thought wasn't, hey Ryan, you have a problem. It was, oh my God, what are you gonna do to get better and get well and where are you gonna go? And you know, my journey into like chaotic use was not protracted at all. Um, it was within a matter of, you know, a few years I was homeless, you know, I had gone you're, to my first- You're skipping the best part for me. This, 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 <laughs> that's my favorite part, from manageable to homeless. Yeah. That has to be the next book. 
from manageable to homeless. That's a good idea. Um, but like, so like, when are you not sharing pills? Like, when does it go from I'm taking it as prescribed? You want to split an oxy with me? To mine, yeah. you can't see it. My precious, don't touch. Yeah. you know when to talk about that and what. Also, like you had so many ambitions, mm -hmm. most of which you're fulfilling right now, yep. which is super exciting. But you had all these ambitions and you're digging this scary hole yep. and you're getting comfortable in the hole. Yep. And I know that I was very ambitious and that when I was getting drugs, like I, I heard you talk about coming out of one of these places with a script for Xanax and yep. for Oxy and for Ativan. And I'm, and I'm six years in recovery, I'm kind of salivating. I'm like, wow, yeah. that's a lot of stuff to get from one spot and not yeah. be worried about anything happening. Yeah. Um, and it does supplant, um, ambition. So what is it like in that, in that era where you start, the good thing starts to disappear. When do you stop sharing pills? When do you start secreting? It was super quick for me. I, you know, I can, if I had to put like a pin in it where it happened, it literally happened the day, the first day I got dope sick. Like the first day that I actually felt dope sick from not having medication, I knew that something was going on with my body. I didn't want to put a tag to it. Like I didn't want to call it addiction. And my solution to, to it was, okay, Ryan, well, you just need to figure out a plan where you always are stocked up sure, and you're never going to have an issue because Unlike most people, or I, I don't want to say most people, but a lot of people that I have met, you know, people not out on, on opioids, people, you know, they, they get soothed, they get relaxed. I had the absolute opposite, opposite effect with it. You I, energized. I got energized. I got, I thought that I got creative and you talk about ambition. Like when did my ambition go into the toilet? Um, it never really went into the toilet. I was just delusional right. at one it point. Changed. It changed. I know right? exactly so like, what you mean. Describe so like that, I, I, as I saw my life collapsing or as my life was collapsing aside me, as I was, you know, being evicted from my first apartment in 2005, um, being fired for the first time that same year in 2005. Why did you get fired? because I was a drug addict. But what was like, what did that do to you? Like, did you start to really know what was happening at that well, point? Well, the first time that it ha I did, I knew what was happening. By 2005, I knew I had a problem. Because when you talk about that the ambition was still there, but you were delusional, yeah. that's a really interesting point, I think, in an Well, I also thought, like, I got, I remember getting fired that first time and me being like, what, can I curse on this show? But I was like, yeah, I was like, what the fuck? You know, I'm like, these people don't know what they're talking about. Like, he's crazy. Like he, I mean, I'm literally being told at a breakfast meeting, like, we think you have a problem. Like you've crashed the rental car like twice. Yeah. Um, you know, we can't take on the, your liability with this. You know, we wish you well, we hope you get help and, um, good luck. And I'm like, these fucking people are crazy. They don't know what they're missing. I'm doing all this great stuff. Like I don't have a problem. And I just went out and I got another job, you know, and I kept getting jobs. Like I worked for the Obama reelection camp or the Obama's first campaign in 2008 in Florida, like basically living out of a Momo, you know, hiding my addiction. So like I was always What's able- What's a Momo? <laughs> Uh, like a $29 a night hotel room in Orlando, Florida. It a was Momo. a Momo. Okay. Yeah. And, but were you in total denial in that period? Yeah, I was in denial. I think I was in denial, um, up until about 2012, but I, even when I was 
like completely out of gas. Like when I say out of gas, no money, no insurance, no job opportunity, no nothing. I can remember telling myself as long as I've got heroin or as long as I've got my medication, I'll be fine. You know, and I had these delusions. You ever watch Lord of the Rings? Of course, I so love Lord of the Rings. It's like it's funny because I I, I really see as as what's his face? Who am I? What's the guy's name? Gollum. Yeah. What was his name before he became Gollum? Uh, it doesn't remember. matter. He was yeah. all the nice little <laughs> hobbity guy. Yeah. And then his fucking yeah. compulsion and addiction took over. He loses all his hair and he's disgusting. Yeah. And that's the transition where you're protecting your precious. Yeah, protecting precious. But I can rem- I. I also had these delusions of grandeur where it was like I could have been living and this is a true story on like a mattress in uh, an escort's house. Right. And like literally feeding off of their medication and just kind of like squatting. But in my head, like everything's fine, everything's fine. And I'm going to be able to get that job. Like I'm going to go back to the White House. Al Gore's like, hiring me. Al Gore. Al Gore is going to hire me. He's going to take my call. I mean, and I he did it, though, right? Well, yes. And I mean, I write about it and someone reached out, you know, it, the funny thing about writing unsettled was a lot of people who read my first book reached out to me and someone reached out to me two days ago and they were reading American fix for the first time. And they were like, dude, did you really take a stripper to meet Barack Obama in 2012? And I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah, I did. I Tell us the story, that. please. <laughs> I was, um, so I was at the tail end. I mean, so I got sober and I went to treatment for the last time in 2014, but I had one other pseudo successful attempt at, 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 at going for uh, sobriety. And that was in 2012, I had one year. Um, leading up to that though, the a year prior to me getting sober for the first time in 2012, I mean, I was, I was bad. Um, I was like a hundred pounds less weight than I am right now. Um, and I had nowhere to live and I ended up living with my drug dealer. Right. Um, and staying on his couch for some time. Cause I still had some hustle. There's something very magical about the beginning of those periods, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like I living mean, at Santa's house. Yeah, it, it is. And I mean, it's, it's interesting though, too, because like my drug dealer and most of my drug dealers, I mean, in, in some respect, this, this particular drug dealer, he's not alive anymore. He was murdered a couple of years oh ago, but, but he was like a caretaker for me when I had nothing. Right. I mean, and people don't like hearing that, but he was, I mean, he, he let me sleep on his couch. Uh, he kept me well. Well, um, it wasn't like he wasn't really benefiting from the business relationship one bit, but his girlfriend um, was an escort, right? Her name was Star. And his name wasn't Tony Baloney, was no, it? No, it wasn't. His name was Horse. Okay. <laughs> and he had one leg. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this is really interesting. Um, but his, his girlfriend was Star. She was an escort. And I lived on their couch and I shared a bed with their dog, Squid. Was that in Florida or in D.C.? That was in Florida. It was in Hollywood, Florida. Okay. And um, the dog's name was Squid? The dog's name was Squid. And um, I still had these delusions of grandeur and I was using heavily and and I from just... Just heroin at that point? Yeah, just heroin, straight heroin, intravenous heroin. And uh, Obama was up for re-election. It was June of 2012. And a friend of mine who I hadn't talked to in years, who wasn't really like tuned into like the world of Ryan and everything that was going on with him, who knew me from, you know, a decade previous, uh, was helping Obama with an event he was having 
uh, in Miami in June of 2012. And he reached out to me. He's like, Hey Ryan, I haven't seen you in a while. Like, you know, he sent me an email and, and, and I'd love to like catch up with you. And, you know, president's going to be down here. He's doing this lunch at the built, like the super poshy hotel, the Biltmore hotel. Um, can you come, you know, and we'll just meet up there. And I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'll come. Like, and I'm thinking this is like my in back, you know, my, my way back in, I'm going to see all these people that yes. I know. And like, we're gonna get going. and, and he's like, yeah, bring, you know, you up in a plus one. Well, I mean, like, there was nobody in the world that I knew that would want to show up to me. Your choices were horse, squid, or 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 star, and so like I'm up late one night, like the week before the event, and I'm like, my mom won't answer my call, and my best friend at the time, nobody was taking my call. They were just like, Ryan is is a disaster right now, um, and I I I was high, and I I looked at Star, and I was like, hey, you want to come go meet the president with me next nice. week? And she's like, oh my God, yeah, I'd love to go meet the president with you. And I'm like, okay, great. And of course, you know, I'm thinking in my mind, I'm just gonna have to stay well through this. So I'm like, but, but you do know what this means. That means like, you have to like keep me well so I don't show it's amazing. up sick. It's some reverse pimping <laughs> going on. Total reverse amazing. pimping. Amazing. And she's like, okay, done deal. And, it's amazing. Um, and keep going. <laughs> well, I had no, I mean, it gets better. I had no car, Star had no car and, um, I actually went to a, like a, what is it? Like a Ross, like the day before. And like, I boosted some clothes. So I had some stuff to What's wear. What's a Ross? A, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a cheap clothing store. Okay. You know, in Florida, in Florida. Yeah. Momo, well, it's kinda, Ross. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they have, they have some of them around the country, but it's like, you could go and get a pair of slacks and a shirt. And I went and I actually stole from the, from the place. Cause I had no money, got myself like a yellow, a yellow shirt, khakis and a tie and um got all dressed up that you know the morning of got well and um star you know took her like two hours to get ready she literally wore i think it was like eight inch heels like stilettos how'd she look fishnet i mean she looked incredible was she busted or did she look good no she looked good but she but she looked like she was ready for work you know and she was and, and she was <laughs> and um she had this massive tattoo of a star like right on her chest awesome which is where her signature name came from and uh star we had to drive we had to get from hollywood florida to coral gables florida in june in the sweltering heat in south florida which is about a 30 mile drive neither of us had a car but star had a moped and it was this pink, hot pink moped that she would use to get around. And I didn't think it would be a problem, but that's what we drove to get to Coral Gables for this event. And it took us like <laughs> almost three and a half hours on the moped. On the moped. It, mind you, blazing sun, right? Going like, I don't know, 15 miles an hour the whole way. We arrive at the, at the lunch by this time i'm completely sunburned as well you know yes. from the moped and i walk in like nothing's wrong you know with star by my side and we sat down and um there were people there that i hadn't seen in a long time and in you know looking back i you know i was delusional but it's almost like you could you could hear the whispers in a sense of like, oh my God, do you see Ryan? Like what, like, what is he doing? Like, who has he brought? Like, what is wrong with this kid? And, 
Um, Meanwhile, you're dazzling everybody with star. With star. And when did when did yeah. you get high in the situation? Did you need to get right high right before? Right before. Like where we, did you get high? Well, before I left. Before I left Hollywood. Okay. I got high. Yeah. So you didn't need to get high. At I the didn't party. need to get high there, but Good. I did get to say hello to President Obama, and um, so did Star, and I talked to him for a couple of minutes that day, and it was, um, you know, he he grabbed my hand and. Um, he treated me with like tremendous amount of kindness and, and respect. And, uh, it was, it was a special moment because it was like the first time in, in, in my chaotic use that I actually felt kind of welcomed, you know, and, 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 and like someone cared about me, even though he probably didn't care at the time, but he like showed me due respect when other people weren't. I think my that's life. really interesting in a lot of ways. First question is like, first thing I just need to tell you, like, Heroin addicts are everywhere, obviously, in recovery, using whatever. The fact that you made it to meet President Obama on a moped with a sex worker yeah. high and and his contact. I mean, like, how many drug addicts do you think Obama meets using? Well, well you have to ask him that question, uh, but, but, that, but, that's <laughs> but not many. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, so first of all, I think it's I love that, like the ubiquitousness of addicts in general. It's nice that you get to meet bill clinton tomorrow sober right. yeah and it's awesome that you got to meet obama totally fucked up yeah it's like i think just that we get to go places even well, if we're using we're, right, but, we're addicts, part, but right. people in recovery and even people who are using like I, and this has been my experience traveling the country and doing the work that i do today like we are some of the most innovative creative entrepreneurial people I have, I think that exists on this planet. I mean, our survival skills and our hustle skills, whether or not you use them for good or bad, are bar none. Well, you figure some shit out. Yeah. You, you have to figure some shit out. Yeah. And then the other thing is like in that situation, like, did you feel any kind of shame that you're wasted like as you describe it that you met somebody who is welcoming and kind and that's obama's mo yeah. you know what i mean you see him yeah. and you see you know learned welcoming kind handsome commanding all these things but like i will tell you what reminded me what 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 stuck out most about to please. me with him was a he is very tall yeah he is he's like abraham lincoln tall right he's huge but he also had like the softest hands of like anybody's hand that I've ever like moisturizer, like crazy that I've ever shaken it. He my knows life. what he's doing. Yeah. He's a pro, yeah. but, but you felt welcome, welcome more than you felt shame. Absolutely. And I think it's notable that it was only five weeks later that I went into treatment. It's funny. There was a guy who came on the show who actually sat here. He told a story about meeting Obama and his whole family high on meth but it turned out it was just a, a meth delusion <laughs> they never, they <laughs> never, never met obama never met him. Uh, well i really did meet obama that's funny because he sat in the exact same chair that's so funny <laughs> but it gave me the boost of like i remember coming home that day and being like i i can do this i i felt like i could do this i felt like maybe i could you know get some help maybe i could get my life back together and I didn't know it then, but it really was what kind of set me on that journey of trying to, to get better. It was a galvanizing experience. It was a galvanizing experience. But it wasn't white light. It wasn't like it was, the skies opened it was, up. It was black politician instead of white light. <laughs> yeah. But besides that, like before we get to the good stuff, when did you, when's the first time you did heroin? 
When's the first time you used a needle? Yeah. Um, I, so in 2000 and in late 2008, I went to my doctor's office, uh, in Florida, uh, to try and get my prescription refilled. And that was when the state had just instituted this thing called the physician drug monitoring database, which sure. was the tracking program, how we track people, what they use, what doctors are seeing. And the doctor who was also using at the time, my doctor was using. How did you know? I mean, we would like every time I would get medication, you know, because they would fill the, the oxys there at the office. Uh, you know, she'd, she'd count them out and keep a couple for herself. And Amazing. like, yeah, I mean, like we, we, she invited me once to a fish show to go with her and like get high. I mean, like, did you go? No, I did not go. I did not go. Cause, cause you don't like fish or cause you didn't want to be friends I with the doctor? I love fish. I just didn't want to be friends with the doctor. I mean, and it was just, it felt weird. Amazing. You know, young woman, older woman, uh, middle-aged, amazing middle-aged woman. But I went in and, and she pulled out my rap sheet essentially because this database had just gone into effect. And she said, you know, you're a junkie, you know, you're a drug seeker. I'm going to lose my license. I could get arrested. If you show up here again, you're going to get arrested. I'm issuing a trespass warning to you. Of course, this is after she's collected my last $150 in my pocket to pay for this visit. So she could give this information to me. Um, Amazing. and I'm sitting there in like full blown withdrawal. And I'm mm. like, what are you talking about? I just paid you. Give me my fucking script. You know, and she's like, no, you need to leave now. You know, there was a security guard at the front with a gun. Like, you got to get out of this office now and and never show up. And you can't show up at any other prescriber either. Like, you're you're pegged. And I walked out of the doctor's office and um, this wasn't just happening to me. Like, it was happening to, like, half of her patients. It was like and overnight. It, it was changed. like overnight, essentially. And there, it felt... I mean, I'm sure it wasn't hundreds of people, but it felt like hundreds of people just kind of hanging out in the parking lot, kind of like, what the fuck are we going to do? It's like they're out of methadone. What are yeah, we going to do? Guys? What are we going to do? Yeah. And um, it was within three minutes of walking out of that office, someone in the parking lot was like, hey, how much money do you have? I think I had like $5 left. And he was like, here, give me your five. Here's here's a bag of heroin. And like, here's my number. And this will get you well. And um and just like that, you know, it graduated to heroin and IV, you know, um, I had already been using IV for about a year prior to, to that visit. I already had had track marks because I was injecting my Oxycontin. When and, was the first time you shot the Oxycontin? Uh, 2007. And I was in a sober home in Florida and it was one of my roommates. I, it wasn't a... I'll, we're not on, on camera, so I'll put it's air quotes, sober home. Yes. I was in like a trap house in Florida. It was where my mom thought that I was sober and sure. I was able to like put this illusion out that I was sober, but everybody was using in the house. Um, and the, um, it was one of my roommates who was like, Hey, like, you know, you're basically like wasting all this medication, you know? I mean, you're, there's you're always doing, an addict who's like, you're all, you're you wasting know, all your money. You're, you're you wasting your money. Yeah. Like you're doing like, you know, 20 pills a day. Like I can get you to 10 pills a day. You'll save money. Just IV. Here's where you can go get the needles. And, and, um, but he didn't teach me how to tie off or how to, to use. I learned all of that from YouTube. And what was, what do you YouTube? Like how to shoot dope? How to shoot dope. Amazing. Yeah. You know, the thing that really strikes me. I was very me, collegiate about it. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's your style. Yeah. So it's yeah. good. <laughs> but I think like the thing that, I mean, 
you leave the the pill mill after you're getting turned away and there's the community of addicts who's there for you with the fucking dope yeah. or you're in the trap house and somebody's like that's not the way you do it like you do yeah. it like this and it's the same community like in or out you know in recovery out of recovery in addiction or out of addiction we're the same people and like and i i always love that you know what i mean at the methadone clinic i remember i was i was sick in in california and i found that group there and it's the same with 12-step group what's well, community i think right. at the end of the day like and 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 this was a big aha for me in recovery like i was never cert like yeah i liked getting high but like I liked getting high with people. I liked living with my drug dealer. I liked, you know, building that community of people who were currently using drugs. I wanted to feel wanted. Um, I think be a part it, of, be a part of, and, and the same thing in recovery. Like, I think we're all searching for that sense of like being welcomed, finding belonging and finding community, you know, and, and, and that has been the most important ingredient to me in getting sober, like finding my community, right? Sticking with my community and enjoying and, people and enjoying people. Exactly. It's yeah. the best. And then, so you meet Obama, you, you have this kind of glimmer of what can be, how bad does it get before you kind of get out of it? Let's just say it got so bad that my drug dealer put me in his car and took me to a public detox and said, dude, you got to get clean. Like he made the decision. It was my drug dealer. Who horse was like, or somebody else. Yeah, no, it was horse. It was horse was like, you, you have to get help. And I mean, it was interesting because they, he broke me down and so did star. And they were like, you know, um, you have like so much potential. I remember them saying that like you can do so much and so much good and like you can't die and you're going to die if you keep doing what you're doing on this couch and you'll probably die here on this couch. Um, you got to give it a shot. You got to get some help. And I know a program, you know, they were like, we, we know a program that it's a public program um, in Broward County. All you need is a Broward County ID. You may have to wait outside and, um, you know, for a day or two, but, but they'll get you in and get you some help. And um, we're going right now, like pack your shit and we're going right now. And it was like, I didn't even have a moment. It wasn't my decision, right? It was, it was their decision. It's like Shawshank Redemption. It's like that guy yeah. didn't belong there. He was too good. It's like, you're a very unusual heroin addict, to be honest with you. Like I think we all deserve that opportunity. I mean, I, but I, I, you know, I was lucky um, that I didn't die. And, uh, he dropped me off in the evening at that public treatment facility. And there was, uh, I was waiting outside to, to get in. I had two trash bags and there was another guy who had just gotten a, a similar scenario who was just dropped off by a drug dealer of theirs. No way. And he was like, dude, do you have anything? I'm like, no, I don't. And, and, and I'm getting sick. He's like, all right, well, I got some crack and I got to go shoot crack. And there was, I, where there's nowhere for me to go. And he went into the, uh, to the porta potty and shot crack in the, in the porta potty and came out and he's like, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm Garrett. And I'm like, Hey, I'm Ryan. And, uh, Garrett is, my best friend today just celebrated seven years in recovery. Amazing. We formed the Voices Project together. We've stuck together since day one. Um, they've been my trudging buddy, and it's it's been one of the most incredible journey. I get like super emotional when I talk about it because I can't believe we're alive and doing the stuff that we're doing today. But like we both met that day in front of that that public detox facility, and nobody, like nobody, thought that we would make it. And they actually 
when we went in, they were like these two guys, like keep them as far apart from each other as possible because they're going to, they're going to end up killing each other or like robbing a bank or something. Well, it's like the you rehab know? romance that turns yeah. into successful marriage. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, totally. that. did you shoot crack with him? No. Well, <laughs> um, we, so we went into that treatment facility and then we went into a sober home where we were roommates for about eight months and we were sober the whole time. And then I got a job opportunity to go out to California at about a year clean or a little bit before a year clean. And, um, he went out there and we both left together the house and we're like, okay, we're going to go out West. We're going to go to LA. We're going to like restart our lives make over there. We're going to make it work. You know, got an apartment. We're roommates over there. I was there, you know, three months, his appendix ruptured and he had to go on opioids. And I quickly, you know, went on opioids right after and, and had a relapse for about, I don't know, eight or nine months, which was really awful. Um, but we both got sober and he got sober before me, but in 2014 and have been sober since. Amazing. Yeah. So we have pretty close sober time then. Yeah. I'm February 2nd, 2015 is my recovery. Yeah. Date. I got sober in the beginning of August in 2015. Yeah. So. Isn't it? But I mean, I think that's, and, yeah. and it's just cool because you've built so all I've built is a little bit of dopey, a couple kids, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but you've built a huge fucking thing since then. I mean, I don't like to say I've built anything. I, All right, I don't, think, you don't yeah. need to be Captain Humility yeah. right here. No, let's let's no. talk about how this thing happened. <laughs> what happened? This isn't Omar Pinto. Uh, Come on, humility. just take it easy. Tell me what happened. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's great. Um, I um, Listen, my point is, be humble, be kind, yeah. but you've, you've done a lot of fucking cool stuff. You've got a lot of things growing. Yeah. You're like throwing some seeds over here, throwing yeah. some tending over here, tending yeah. over here, writing a couple books. Yeah. Like shit is happening. What made, how did you put the pedal to the metal in the first place? So I um, was living in a recovery house in Pasadena, California uh, in 2015. I stayed there for nine months and I um, can remember it wasn't really what happened to me that made me want to get out and tell my story and start getting public about it and writing books and forming the nonprofit Voices Project and Mobilize Recovery and all this recovery advocacy project. I mean, there's just so many things we do today. That wasn't the intent. Um, about six You're months- You're my fucking hero over here. <laughs> oh, man. But like six months into being sober, um, I had my first friend die that I was like, I had been in treatment with, um, his name was Greg and I was super close to him and it impacted me. And then I had another friend die like three weeks later. It was like, I hit that six, nobody died in the first six months. And then it was like, once we hit six months, it was like every couple of weeks. And, um, they were friends of mine. And one of them was my, my roommate at my sober home. And, um, it hit, you know, one, my friend Nick died, uh, of an overdose after being turned away from a hospital, room asking for help and he died on the on the sidewalk just right. a block from from right. us and it 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 hit me at this level that i wasn't expecting right like i i thought we all get sober and we all get better and life 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 goes on and you know when they were telling me early on like no be prepared like people are going to start dying i never internalized that because i also never really experienced death and loss while i was using i, I have had, the same exact situation i can remember like two or three people over the course of 10 years of active use who I was close with that died of an overdose. Like it wasn't like everybody seemed to just be falling off at once. Right. It did feel like that because it was happening about six months in. 
and um, I was angry about it and I didn't know what to do about it. So I had kind of dovetailing back. Remember, I was a political organizer back in the day and I used to organize labor campaigns and governor's races and worked in the White House and, you know, was a community organizer. And um, I thought to myself, this is bullshit. Like I have friends who are like legitimately asking for help their insurance won't either either their insurance won't pay for treatment or they're being turned away at hospitals because they have no resources for them or they're being kicked to the curb out of sober homes because they relapse with nowhere to go and they're dying as a result of it and i'm being told by some folks in in my recovery program that this is just how it is right. like i would go to my i remember going to my sponsor and being like dude what the fuck like what can we do and he's like this is just what happens. People die. Like sometimes people die. My, my sober home manager told me sometimes people have to die so that others can recover. Well, my, my sponsor told me I had a temporary sponsor when, when my partner died Yeah, and he said, Oh, you have to step over bodies to, to, you know, no. in your recovery. And, but what I'm hearing from you is it's like you had these tools and then this thing lit the fire and mm -hmm. you were like, wait a second, I can do something about this. Well, because I started to look at it differently. Like it felt like those things like stepping over dead bodies and like, those are all cliches that we hear. Until you're actually doing until it. Until you're actually experiencing it and realizing it's like, yeah, they're dying, but the circumstances of their deaths are like, unacceptable like some of these people are asking for help and they're not getting it like your friend like my friend and so i started reaching out to local leaders and politicians and nobody would listen to me and tried to connect with some people that i had worked with in the past and nobody would listen to me because they were like oh there's just that drug you know isn't it the, i remember the one of the phrases my mom would tell me she'd hear from people i used to work with was isn't it just so sad what happened to Ryan Hampton? Like, isn't it so sad, like how he just destroyed his life and now he's living in a halfway house in, right. in Pasadena, California and nobody would listen. And so I was, um, up one morning at 6am and, um, with Garrett, my, my best friend, Garrett was living in the house with me. I was having, I don't smoke cigarettes anymore, but I was smoking cigarettes. It was my, my routine. I re read the newspaper and it was the, uh, spring of 2016. It was in the middle of the 2016 presidential election. And I opened up the, the, the LA times. And there was this big article that said, uh, the democratic national convention is happening this summer. And, uh, the, the process is now open for people to run for delegate, to be a delegate to the DNC um, and help nominate the next president of the United States. And then it detailed the process, which is you have to register to vote. You've got to register with the state party. Um, you got to go out and campaign. And there was this whole process prescribed to me. And I, I looked at Garrett and I said, what if I run? Like, fuck everybody else. What if I run for DNC delegate and then I have to show up at this caucus, which is this meeting of like a thousand or so party people in my congressional district. And I get 30 seconds to tell a story. I'm not going to win. You know, I was like, there's no fucking way I'm going to win. Right. I don't even have a suit, you know? Um, but at you least- You didn't go back to Ross and see what right, you did. I didn't go back to Ross, but at least I'd have 30 seconds to like tell the community what's happening and maybe make some contacts there and, and be, be seen and, and to feel the way you wanted to live. And I mean, right. that, I mean that that's a piece of and it. And validated, right. And, and validated. And, and, and 
he's like, that's crazy. And I, I read further into the article. I was like, oh, look at this, Garrett. I was like, the you know, the last uh, paragraph of this news news article said it. it's actually easier to get into Harvard than to be elected a delegate to the DNC. And I was like, great. You know, I've always wanted to go to Harvard. Right. I'm going to run for this, you know, and I can do it. Absolutely. So I registered to vote the very next day, registered my paperwork. It didn't cost anything. There were about 80 candidates for the, for two, two delegate spots. I mean, we're talking judges, lawyers, school board members, mayors, you know, the, 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 the elite of the party, I guess you could say. Um, and I was like, well, shit, you know, I put, you know, put some of the old skills to work. I said, well, if there's like a thousand voters, I need to get, you know, for two spots, probably need to get about a third, you know, maybe, maybe 250, 300 votes. I'll probably get one of those two top spots given there's 70 candidates, maybe a little bit less. So instead of going out and campaigning to people who, who I don't know, I'm like, I, you know, there's hundreds of addicts, hundreds of people in recovery that live in this congressional district. And I know them all, you know, we got those votes and then you got your your numbers. Yeah. And so I went around to, to sober homes and support groups and, you know, non-related AA announcements and announcements afterwards. And I registered people to vote and I did that for like three weeks and I registered a few hundred people to vote. And uh, the deal was, I was like, okay, I'm registering you to vote, but you've got to show up to this caucus thing. You know, this is why I'm running. I want to talk about Nick. I want to talk about Greg. I just want to ask these people to do something. Hopefully, if they see us show up in numbers, they're not going to ignore us anymore. They're going to realize that they have to be a part of this solution. And so on. Ca- the plan was on caucus day, everybody comes to the sober house and we'll eat breakfast and then we'll figure out how to get to the caucus because nobody really had cars. I was like, well, just carpool or whatever. And, uh, but we had to meet at 9 a.m. So night before I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've registered like 340, close to 400 voters, but none of them are gonna show up because everybody's so unreliable. Nobody's gonna show up. And it was, I woke up the next morning at like 8 a.m. Like people started trickling in and at first it was 10 then it was 20 and then it was 50 then it was 100 then it was 150 and like the whole deck of before you know it like the whole deck and yard was filled with people and um i was like oh my god like you know not only were they just believing in me running but like they believed in this like cause that like maybe our voices mattered i mean we had people who were like just homeless weeks before registering to vote people who just gotten out of prison registering to vote And we carpooled over to the caucus and there was a line snaked around, you know, the bend of probably eight or 900 people waiting to vote. And we all, you know, suits, ties and sport coats and, you know, candidates with like banners. And one woman had a lollipop with her face embedded in it to like get, you know, all the little tchotchke stuff that they give out. And I show up there with like, you know, a dozen or so recovery houses that banded together. And, you know, our, our folks are like tattooed and vapes and cigarettes and shorts and t-shirts. The tribe, the gathering of the tribe. The gathering of the tribe shows up and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of people, but at least we registered these folks not going to win this. And like, you know, but we made the effort and we're all here. And what transpired next is what has guided me in my advocacy and efforts for the last, you know, six years. And that was that, we decided that we would just fan out and we'd talk to every single person uh, at that line and we would tell them why we were there and we would tell them about Nick, we'd tell them about Greg and we'd tell them a little bit about our own story. And I couldn't get uh, 
you know, a full sentence out without someone in that line telling me about how they had grown up in an alcoholic household, how they had lost uh, a granddaughter to an overdose, how they had a brother or they had a sister in treatment. And it felt as if the community was waiting for our permission to tell their stories. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, like I won that election. I won big, you know, it was a landslide. I went to the Democratic National Convention. Garrett and I rented an, an RV and traveled the country. Um, we collected as many stories along the way as we could and got back from that trip and decided that, you know, people really wanted to be heard. People really wanted their, their voices to be amplified. People in recovery and those who are struggling had felt they'd been pushed to the side for too long. Um, and it was with $20 uh, and a, uh, a, a, a laptop that we, with that $20, a laptop that we got from a pawn shop and hijacked internet uh, from our neighbors next to the uh, sober house uh, that we started the Voices Project online. Um, and it has now grown. Uh, into an advocacy organization, nonprofit, uh, with, that reaches, you know, I think we have something like 22 or 23,000 members in 41 states, uh, community coalitions. We've got over 500 advocacy leaders, all, all volunteer uh, run. Uh, we have a huge initiative called Mobilize Recovery. We've passed dozens of pieces of legislation um, that uh, increase access to recovery for people in different states, uh, federal legislation uh, that supports recovery community organizations that provide standards for sober home. Like we, we've really made it our mission to uplift the voices of those in recovery, but also my dream is to kind of like in recovery, like freely give what's been given to you, um, is to try and take these tactics and these skills that have been given to me and that I've learned and give them as freely as I can to others. Because my hope is that somebody comes along and there are people coming along that do this bigger and right. do this better and that carry this torch and sure. keep going, you know, it's amazing. It's like, yeah. the, it's like the Ramones, yeah. like, like everyone or the velvet underground, everyone said that when people went to see that band, all those people started bands, right? And that's what the point of voices is, exactly. And that's what the point of Dopey is to to a to a, an extent. Like, and our stories are very similar. We started Dopey. I had four months clean when we started Dopey. Two of my best friends died as we made it, which galvanized my resolve to reach more people. All I wanted to do was create a community where people who were struggling could listen and feel like they were part of something. And now there's this really very vibrant Dopey Nation community. Yep. How can they join the voices? Oh, goodness. Go to, you know, there's places to, to check out. MobilizeRecovery.org, you know, VoicesRiseUp.org. You know, there's a little bit of something for everyone uh, in the work that Voices Project does and Mobilize Recovery does. Um, for some people, it's just they want to tell their story for the first time and they want to know how to do it. And when I say tell the, tell our story, like I think a lot of us in recovery, we're really good at telling, you know, you know, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. But telling your story outside of recovery rooms and support groups is very different, you know, and it's a different it's experience. Scary. It's also scary in a right. lot of ways because all of a sudden you're telling you're you're telling somebody a story that they don't understand. Right. Like somebody in a in a 12 step room gets it. We we relate. Yep. But when you tell that guy's mother that you stuck your head in the tiger's mouth or that you went to yeah. meet Obama with star on the motor. Well, but there's also like, that's the interesting thing about recovery storytelling is that there's a craft to it, right? There's a, there's a, there's a public narrative craft. It's like, what, 
who is your audience and why are you telling your story will help guide you know how you tell how it. you tell it right the story of of self the story of us our community the story of now what you're asking them to do like there's a specific craft and those are the things we try to offer to the community all free of charge you know folks we're starting to see this phenomenon of you know call them addicts i'd like to use people in recovery but like people in recovery who are running for a public office like openly like i am like marty walsh like you know our, our former mayor of boston and now the united states secretary of labor gets up before speeches and he's i'm, I'm marty i'm an alcoholic you know i'm do a people freak alcoholic. out no they don't freak no, out i mean at all. do they cheer like, yeah, yeah yeah they cheer right, like right. it's become an identity that's more and more socially acceptable and well it shows humanity it shows yeah. humanness it shows that nobody's perfect and it shows i i mean like even just watching the State of the Union where Biden starts yes, talking about 23 recovery. Million and, and it was yeah. pretty like, it's like scary to hear him talk about addicts. In, incredible. In, right? it, it was incredible, but it's not just about humanity. It's about social justice. It's about equity, right? It's about equality because, you know, people who are struggling with addiction, uh, people in recovery, we're still stigmatized and stigma is just a kind word for like, prejudice and discrimination. There's people who could still lose their jobs. There's sure. people who could be denied life insurance. There's, you know, uh, health insurance isn't covering uh, addiction treatment on par with other chronic health conditions. You know, housing is an issue, employment's an issue. Like there's still a lot of things we have to overcome, but there's so many of us. The math is in our favor, right? So 23 million Americans in recovery, you know, one in three households impacted, about 40 million Americans impacted by addiction who are still struggling. like if all of those people felt safe enough and were given the space to identify and share their story, like we could, you know, help, we could, we could, we could contribute, contribute to solving this crisis very quickly because people will see us kind of coming out of the shadows. Right. So it's about, do you think that's enough though? I mean, it's like, because it's like, it's a, it's a huge start. There's a woman in our community, uh, a journalist named Emily St. Martin, and she just wrote a piece about the show Euphoria. Yeah. And, uh, and so many people talk about Euphoria in this very triggering way. And like, they can't watch it because it I don't know. Let's talk about Euphoria for a second. I've been able to, well, I, I, I have a hard time watching it and I'm really, it, it has, it is triggering. Like it's traumatic to me. I mean, my fiance loves it. Sean loves it. Is he I an can't addict? watch it. Uh, he's not a heroin addict. He's a he's a recovering meth addict. I I can't watch, like I don't like watching intervention. I when I, I was hate, using I hate intervention. when I was using they should take it off the air. When I was using, <laughs> I loved watching intervention, and I loved watching of every course. show when people were using. When I was using, when I stopped, my wife can't get enough of intervention, and we're watching it. And everyone's like shooting up, and I'm like, no. I'm just sitting there. I'm like, I don't think this is really the thing I should be watching. But with Euphoria. I mean, our show is about yeah. kind of like euphoria, like in a way, like dopey. Like I want to hear every it's a bad show. No, no, no. It's I know what you're saying, but traumatic. I, <laughs> I think that like I have a little piece of me that I still I like to hear about the worst shit you did. Yeah. With euphoria, like first of all, it looks beautiful. It's written really well. It is well written. Um, and the the thing that this woman wrote, who's a great friend of our show, she's a friend of mine. She wrote that like if she had been a kid and shows were like euphoria, she might not have become a heroin addict, mm -hmm. but instead they talk about like, like caffeine but that's, pills. But, but, I mean, let's like look back though, because I, I, I'd love to link up with that author because I, one of my favorite films when, before I had 
problem with heroin addiction was basketball diaries. I mean, Jim Carroll's story in basketball diaries. I mean, that what I mean, Great you movie. know, sans, sans euphoria. Yeah. And the film with Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Like, sure. I mean, really well done, well written, very graphic, very traumatic. But like, I was super into it. that. I could put that on the same level as euphoria. Yeah. And it didn't, it did not make you not want to it do did heroin. Not, it did not, it did, it was not preventative. No. One bit. No, I think that's a fun, a fun, a fun point. Yeah. Now, another very interesting and important thing, making sure that we didn't miss the cat's delivery to Morgan Stanley. For, <laughs> forgive me. Forgive me. Morgan Stanley would be pissed. <laughs> Today, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, dude, but that's half of these interviews. It's like, yeah. where's my sandwiches? <laughs> you know, it's not good. Um, you, you, I greeted Ryan downstairs and he had just gotten this information about the Sackler case. Yeah. And, and you, your first book was American Fix was about, I guess, how to fix our problem through community kind of just. Yeah. It's exact- more like the first part of a memoir plus an agenda and, and you know, what I've seen across America. And yeah. the second book is unsettled. Yeah. How the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy failed the victims of the American overdose crisis. And I commend you because, like, it's hard for me to care about, like, things. I I have a little bit of an ambivalent streak in me. And you have the ability to see something and then figure out how to affect change. And I think that's pretty fucking cool. Um, I'm a little scared of it. Like, (laughs) there's something a little (laughs) off-putting about it. But at the same time, I know that. I can learn a lot from from what you do. So tell the Dopey Nation how uh, you got involved with the Sackler thing and what happened today. Yeah, well, I am, um, you know, in that advocacy journey I was talking about before, like I didn't know when I was using, I, I had no idea who the Sackler family was. I knew who Purdue was because they were on the side of my pill bottle. But when I got sober and shortly after that trip in, in 2016, you know, and I started writing a lot, you know, I was writing for the Huffington Post, I was writing for other for other large dailies about addiction, about recovery and sharing my story and kind of ideas that I had in the writings and uh, started to learn a lot more about who the Sackler family was, who Purdue Pharma was, what they did, what the extent of their involvement in kind of gaslighting America with, with Oxycontin was, and it really pissed me off. And- um, what is, How do they, what is gaslighting exactly? Lied lied, you know, I mean, mismarketed, misbranded, uh, you know, going on and saying things like, you know, use of Oxycontin has less than a 1% chance of being addicted. Like, give me a break, you know, I mean, I'm sure horse was honest with his, his customers. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Way more honest than the Sackler family was. And the Sackler family owned Purdue. Uh, they were on the board of directors. And as I learned more about, you know, the nuances between Purdue the Sackler family and the overdose crisis and what we were experiencing, I was getting really frustrated because I started to be able to see a straight line between not just my decisions and poor, poor decisions I had made in my life, but I started to connect the dots between what doctors were telling me. And when I got those first prescriptions and the pill mills and everything else, and I was like, Oh my God, there were people actually sitting in a boardroom in Stamford, Connecticut, like cheering me on to doctor shop, incentivizing these doctors to give me more medications. And their bottom line was going up billions and billions of based dollars. Based on, on a million of views. Right, based on, on millions of me, right. And and seeing that people were dying and and it pissed me off and, and I started writing about them, right? I wrote about them several times. And 
the a bunch of attorneys general got together in 2017 and decided they were going to go after Purdue and these other pharmaceutical manufacturers and distributors in, in opioids and, and sue them for like, kind of like we did with tobacco, uh, in the nineties, Purdue actually opted out of what was the multi-district litigation where there was just a big, a huge $26 billion settlement in, uh, earlier this week and filed for bankruptcy because they didn't feel that they had the assets to, to cover their liability, potential liability in this lawsuit. And it moved them out of like your normal kind of court court uh, venue into a bankruptcy venue, which is completely different. Like I've learned so much about bankruptcy the last two years, I, I never wanna hear the word again, but very corporation friendly, very, you know, uh, giving deference to, you know, the owners of the corporations and the corporation's bottom line, because bankruptcy is about protecting the value of the company and reemerging as a new corporation. In bankruptcy, um, there's a thing called a creditor's committee, which basically is like a plaintiff. It's like a plaintiff's committee that faces off with the company, right? Helps restructure the company, restructure the amounts that will go to victims that were caused harm. In the Purdue case, it meant coming up with a deal that would deliver billions of dollars of value uh, to individuals who were harmed, but also treatment and recovery and all of those things. And, you know, me and my, you know, former addict brain, I guess you could say, or my, you know, my thinking. Your opportunistic addict uh, brain. Opportunistic thought. Your junkie hustler brain. Hey, why the hell couldn't I get myself on that committee, representative of people in recovery and, 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 and victims? And so I wrote a letter to the United States Department of Justice the day they filed for bankruptcy in September of 2019 and told some of my story and said, I think that a victim needs to sit on this com this very powerful committee that's gonna be squaring off with attorneys general and the US Department of Justice and Purdue and the Sackler family, et cetera, et cetera. And sure enough, I got a response Amazing. two days later and was invited here to New York City, uh, met with the DOJ and that night I was appointed uh, to a nine member committee uh, that would oversee the entire bankruptcy process and be the watchdog. Um, and I was elected that same night as the co-chair of that committee. So I, I had a pretty powerful fiduciary representing over 600,000 individual claims uh, from companies and governments and, and, and victims uh, in the bankruptcy. And it was bonkers. It was two years of bonkers. I resigned in September of this year. Uh, 2021, because I thought the process was completely corrupt and fixed. Um, what I learned throughout the process was that um, it was completely corrupt. It was completely <laughs> right. corrupt and fixed and that we have a huge problem with billionaire justice here in the United States. Right. I thought I was going to go into this and say, hey, you know, the government and the victims and, and the families and, and the Department of Justice and, you know, all these people were harmed. We're all going to stand up and fight against the, the big, bad, evil super corp and the Sackler family. And we could win. And we could win. But what I learned was, uh, you know, us people in recovery, family members, victims, we're really on our own. You know, everybody's fighting for themselves. And it, it was a big power struggle and money struggle. Um, 92 and a half percent of the settlement will go to the government and corporations. Seven and a half percent will go to victims. Uh, I was told by actually the New York attorney general's office, uh, Tish James office, you know, and, and I'm a Democrat, um, that victims deserve nothing out of this settlement 
because we did this to ourselves. Yeah. And that's the classic, you know? One. Yeah. Once and a so, junkie, always a junkie. You know, it's and your I, own problem. Exactly. And I, I, yet they were, yet the government was making these extraordinary trillion dollar claims in the case for the harm that was caused to them. And I'm like, you know, your thinking's totally fucked up here. Your harm wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for our harm. Right, like your harm occurred as a and result. And I'm sure of they're thinking, if you get that money, you're just going to spend it spend on it drugs. Spend it on drugs. Anyway. They actually said that. Yeah. I wrote that on Unsettled. Yeah. Deputy Attorney General David Nachman of, of New York State actually said, "Vic, they will use the money on drugs." You know, which is just mind-boggling to me. But it was also see, I can imagine getting a settlement and spending it all on drugs. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, it's like it's fucked up because I just I Wait, know but, but that's let's, not but fair. Let's, that's but let's not just fair. Put, but let's put that aside for a second, like. Like, what if somebody does do that? Who fucking, whose it's their, business they, is that? They, exactly. Like, it's, it's their money. They should be able to spend it on anything they fucking want. You know, want. it's their money. And they were harmed more. Individuals were harmed more than the government in this case. And that was really what frustrated me out of the whole process is we were pushed aside because we were dubbed as addicts or stigmatized families who had addicts in their families, where if this had been a bankruptcy with a car manufacturer around faulty seatbelts, victims would of course have been at the top. And right. they usually are in these mass tort or type smoking. bankruptcies. Or smoking, right. Victims come at the top, but at this one, uh, we were at the bottom. But to get to your question, you know, and folks was the, what was the question? Dive, well, was the question, question was what happened today? What happened today Wait, before was- before that, I wanna yeah, ask you another question. Yeah. How powerless did that whole process make you feel like how much did that mm. instill that feeling that we had? I was just working steps the yeah. other day with my sponsee talking about powerlessness and talking, we were doing step one yesterday with this a yeah. cop I'm yeah. sponsoring a cop. It's yeah. amazing. And, and cop, yeah, it's gotta be fun. It's amazing. Yeah. And, but we're just talking about how powerlessness shows itself in so many different places. Did you f taste the powerlessness? Yeah, I did taste the powerlessness, but I also, I, 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 about halfway through the process, about a year and a half ago, I came to acceptance that I was going to be in a minority in terms of having power and that the power really existed with the government, the attorneys general and the Sacklers. That being said though, I could be very, I could still be powerless and still be very loud about it. Ergo, I wrote a fucking book that basically put them all on blast. So like part of writing the book, which was really a tell all of everything that happened in the case. Like I name names. I talk about how, you know, we were pushed aside. I talk about private meetings I had with the Sacklers. You know, I was still to this day, you know, this Crazy. may change in the next week when the Sacklers make a full on apology, but I was the only, you know, adversarial activist that has had a meeting with a member of the Sackler family. Like I write about attorneys generals and, and, and what they would say in public and then behind closed doors, the deals that they were making, like I put it all on blast. And even though I was powerless, um, at certain points of the process, I was also writing the book in real time, which was kind of my outlet for like, I'm going to show you motherfuckers, you know, because if, if we don't put this, out in the public domain, this process will repeat itself. And there has to be accountability for what happened here because it was just, it was a travesty. And today, um, the Sacklers and all 50 states have come to an agreement on, on a substantial settlement 
Um, so it does appear as if the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy is finally coming to a close because a lot of people think, well, we should just keep suing them to the end of the time. Well, what people also don't realize is like, yeah, that sounds great to some and lawyers are the ones who are usually putting that out there. Cause they get but that's the money. because they're the ones getting paid. If sure. we keep suing them to the end of time, there's going to be no money for, for the payment. victims. There's going to be no money for the victims. We need to go after the Sackler family criminally. Um, this is all just Can been a bunch happen of, or not? absolutely. Yeah. There's no. No, there, there's zero um, language in the plan that that prevents the Department of Justice from charging the Sackler family criminally or any state. The question is, will they? And I have always had this sneaking su suspicion that although they can, they probably won't because this has never been about justice for any of them. This has been about money. Right. Wow, it's crazy. Just the idea of staring. It's it's. Let me ask you this, as an addict, as somebody who lived with your drug dealer, as somebody who got crazy pills and, and these pill mills, like you've procured drugs from all these different scenarios and you're sitting across a screen from the biggest drug dealer, yeah. like in the, like one of in the one of the biggest in, in the, the history, history of the world. Of, right. Yeah. Him and Chapo Guzman, I mean, and, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. Is it the same feeling? Is it a different feeling? What what how does it compare in your head when you're sitting across that kind of uh relationship i well let's just say if you ever really want to know what like true evil looks like you could just go on a zoom call with david Sackler. is that real yeah i mean evil creepy it was creepy um and it was upsetting because you know i really went in with an agenda which was you know, fuck this guy. I'm going to tell him not just my story. I mean, I brought obituaries with me. I brought pictures of my friends. I, you know, and then I dove into him because my whole, what I was trying to get from him was extract uh, more money. Like you, the, they were only proposing $3 billion at the time. I was like, you guys need to like put up like another billion or two just for victims. And you said that to David Sackler. Yeah, I said that directly. to David Sackler. What did he say? I don't have it. There is no more money. And I knew like it was literally one of the richest, wealthiest pharmaceutical, you know, kingpins in the world crying broke to me, which I knew was bullshit. And what did you say? I just said I disagreed. And I said, I, I think you're going to have a very hard time getting, you know, what you want out of this deal if you're just going to screw victims the whole time. And and the, the call actually ended abruptly uh, with me like hitting, you know, it was it was getting heated and we ended it because um, we were getting nowhere. But um, incredibly entitled and super evil. Like, but also, I got a sense that, you know, there's not like mental wellness is not like the, 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 the guiding star of the Sackler family. Like, this is a family who truly believes, I think, that they've done nothing wrong. You know, I truly but like, but that could be just denial, just like denial. You were in denial. I think it is denial. I think it is denial. But it was funny because I also, with David in particular, and I wrote about this on in Unsettled at length because I had reviewed some confidential emails and discovery. You know, he was someone who himself struggled with alcoholism and gambling and addiction problems, and and they never talked about it publicly. Like it was just just this secret. Like he struggled with his own issues. So, you know, there was a lot going on with him as well, I'm sure. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he's like 
you know, uber evil and awful. Um, what's going to happen to the Sackler family now? I think they're probably going to ride off into the sunset and go enjoy their billions of dollars. And do you think they're going to change their names? I don't, you know, no. (laughs) Well, I have to say like more than anything else, your story is fucking crazy and extraordinary. Like it really is to go from like the shit you've seen, seeing Obama in the grips of addiction to, to being on this, in this capacity in, in, in obvious thriving recovery to doing the next stuff that you're doing. And I'm not usually so schmaltzy about this kind of stuff. I'm not, I, I think it's pretty amazing because you, you, I just think that your skill set, your interest got channeled wrong and now it's channeled right. And you got to do what you want to do. Yeah. And I've, I've, you know, for anybody that ever asks like, what do I do in my recovery? You know, or they get sober, like what do I do? And I'm like, well, what do you love? Right. You know, what do you love? Because that's what you should be doing, you know, and, and find first find out what you love, but make sure that what you do isn't all you love. You know what I mean? In Explain terms of that. Work. Well, you know, it's easy. I think for, you know, I love what I do, but it can't be all I love. If that makes sense. Like I we can't can get too obsessive, too about obsessive it. with it. Right. And, um, but I think there's two key components to lasting recovery and, and just thriving in recovery. And that's, you know, community and purpose, you know, and I think when people can grab a hold of community and purpose, they've got a really good shot. And, you know, we have kind of community, we've got prescribed, you know, pathways and steps and different ways for people to build community when they get sober and get into recovery. Um, finding purpose can usually you know, take a little bit more time for folks, but, but, but it can also be anything. It There's can be so anything. many purposes oh that are worthy. Yeah, absolutely. It could be, it could be, you know, someone you love. It could be a family. It could be working painting. in an ice it cream, could be parlor. Working an ice cream parlor. I mean, things I got to tell you, like work, you bring up working in an ice cream parlor. Sometimes I get so frustrated with my work and job because sometimes it does feel thankless and it does feel like during, during the Purdue thing, like it was just hopeless. And I love ice cream. And I was telling Sean, my fiance, I'm like, you know what I think I'm going to do this summer? I think I'm going to go take a job serving ice cream. What's your, what's your go-to ice cream? Oh, chocolate chip cookie dough. Which, who makes it? Baskin Robbins. Shut the, Baskin Robbins? That's your number one? <laughs> yeah. We've We've started this little program on YouTube where we're tasting and reviewing every Ben and Jerry's flavor, with the mission being going to Burlington, Vermont, and having Ben and Jerry's create a dopey flavor where all profits go to addiction. Oh, my God. I love you that. You should get in on yeah, that. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Let's do it. Right? Oh, my God. The dopey dope. Yeah. Oh. Oh, excellent. You're in? Yeah, I'm in. But we got to take the <laughs> cookie dough Baskin Robbins off the table. <laughs> yeah, I, My flavor is Haagen-Dazs, either chocolate chocolate chip mm-hmm. or vanilla chocolate chip. But I appreciate Ben and Jerry's flair. Well, I mean, I kind of have like a sweet spot for that. You know, when I first got sober, Talenti had just come on. That, that was Chris's yeah. thing. And I used to get like I gained like, I mean like 120 pounds in like a year, my first year in recovery. And it was because I would go and get like an entire tub of Talenti and just like eat it every night. Like love Talenti, but it's just too much for me these days. I, I had Talenti right after Chris died. Cause Chris used to tell me about Talenti and brag about the, yeah. the luxuriousness of it. Yeah. It's, it's it, quite a brand. It's the bougie ice cream. It's, the, it's, the, it's, it's gelato. <laughs> yeah. It's gelato. Absolutely. Well, Ryan Hampton, is this the greatest podcast you've ever been on? Amazing. You were amazing. Had a lot of fun. You did great. I've had a lot of fun. And I, I, I actually love this podcast. I, I listened to it, you know, a couple of years ago. And I think the community built around it is 
excellent and i'm hoping we're going to be doing some more together and just you know I, I, it's so cool how i ended up being in new york today it's like we can do this in person too like that's special to me we did it the right way this yeah. was the right way yeah and thank you for coming on thanks for having me is there anything you want to tell anybody before you go i love everybody that's it that's i love beautiful. you we love ryan too love finally an actual meeting obama on drug story like that's worth the price of admission, especially when the show is free to listen to. Uh, lots of you have been worried about my dad. He is okay. He is recuperating in South Florida. And I think we're all pretty bugged out and, and fucking worried about this war in Ukraine. And it is scary as hell. But um, I don't know. It's very easy as a drug addict to get distracted by something like a war and let it be an excuse to, to use. You know, and I... Uh, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, I want you guys to do whatever you want. If you need an excuse to use, then use the war in Ukraine. But we don't need an excuse to use, right? And I was just doing a daily reflection all about service, right? We're doing these fucking daily reflections on YouTube. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. And we were talking about service. And it's like, if you get caught up in something like the war, and you're like, fuck it, I'm going to use, or you get distracted and you're like, fuck it, I'm going to use. There are so many better things to try to be about. I mean, and it can be about TV. I got distracted. I watched this beautiful movie about uh, Brian Wilson called Love and Mercy. Fucking amazing movie. So sad. And I got distracted. Or I got... I did step work with sponsees, which is an amazing experience. Or I went to, you know, I go to meetings or I fucking am with my kids. Just distract yourself. Eyes on the prize. That's what I always say. Eyes on the prize. Um, also, uh, I, I was looking for a dopey email to read and I found this incredible email and I was sure I had read it, but I don't think I had. So I want to read it now. It says, hi, Dave. My name is Rachel, and I'm a Portland native currently living in Hawaii. I found Dopey a few weeks ago as I was browsing overdose and relapse in the search bar of my podcast app, desperately trying to make the few weeks of my life make a little more sense. Like many of your listeners, I have Dopey stories aplenty. I traveled the world with three dudes I barely knew who were all in recovery. I was not. I totaled my dad's truck while I was having a psychotic break after trying to cold turkey benzos. I smoked crack and heroin with my boyfriend in recovery who had just relapsed after having eight years clean. The list goes on. But I found your podcast and started listening right when Chris died, and sadly, that's what got me hooked. The man in many of my dopey stories, one of the main characters of my life, the love of my life, Bobby Berger, died from a tragic overdose this last Christmas. Hearing you and Annie and his friends grapple with Chris's death has been the only thing I found to be even the slightest bit comforting in a weird, twisted way. I'm 28, and everyone tells me how young that is for having as many stories as I do. But I think that's one of the silver linings of being an addict. We fit a lot of bullshit into a very short amount of time. We also fit a lot of healing in as well. A lot of people have been telling me lately about Bobby and I fit a whole love story that usually takes people decades into a short six-year relationship. I just listened to the episode that you had Linda on, which made me laugh and cry way more than you guys probably intended. 
You two reminded me of Bobby and I in big and little ways. Your story makes me a bit envious, though, for getting that last chance to be together. I didn't get so lucky because I didn't take Bobby's relapse seriously. He asked for my help at the end, and I hesitated, and now he's gone. He asked me to fly him out to be with me, but now his ashes are sitting on my dresser. It's the strangest and most painful dichotomy. I would love to talk to you sometime and tell a story or two. I also have a really lovely voicemail from Bobby that he sent me a few weeks ago before he died that I thought might be weird, but kind of cool to play on the show. Even if this email just sits in a box with a bunch of other half stories of love, loss, and addiction, then that's cool too, because it's all part of Dopey Nation, which I'm stoked to be a part of now. And then she says, here's the voicemail along with a few photos of our journey together. The voicemail was sent on 11-29-2020, and he died less than a month later on 12-25-2020. Bob was a man of many nicknames, but most commonly known as Baby Bobby Biscuits, a.k.a. Biscuit, a legend for sure. Uh, enjoy, and I hope to hear from you soon. Toodles. I wrote her back right after I, I, I read this email to myself. And, uh, and then she, and I said, I'm going to read it. And then she never wrote back. And then I never read it. And um, I read it last night, and I was like, what a powerful email. And um, it's it's very sad. You know, rest in peace, baby Bobby Biscuit. It's good to have nicknames. It's and, and, and our love goes out to Rachel, who I actually texted last night, and she's in Hawaii, and she said she's having a good time, and she's going to send in some voicemails, which is great. And I hope you guys send in some voicemails as soon as you can. It's very important. I'll post uh, Bobby's Bobby's voicemail is just a sweet like little love voicemail. I'm gonna put it on uh, Patreon and the pictures on Patreon if unless Rachel doesn't want me to, in which case she can tell me. But she's she's on like episode 209 right now, so she's not gonna hear this for like a year. But that's all right. Anyway, so subscribe to Patreon. Subscribe, you know, subscribe to YouTube fucking be a part of this thing. And then I don't think I mentioned this. We're having these amazing candles made by North Ave Candles. And there's six candles. They have amazing scents. They're very high quality, actually. Surprisingly high quality. So go to northavcandles.com slash community slash... No, that's not it. It's northavcandles.com slash collections slash dopey. Check them out. Buy our fucking gear dopeypodcast.com. We got clothes. I've been shipping everything. Everything is shipped except one Australian person has something coming, but it's hard to ship international. So if you want anything from me, like the stuff from the store, they handle international well. If you want a snapback or an Oyve hat or a Big Bird beanie or socks and you're international, expect that to take a while. But if you're local, I'll ship it right out. Message me about it. And I think that's the end of the show. Um, I'm going to play a, a good so bad from this woman named Anne, and they wrote me an email as well. And I'm going to read that too before we go. And she said, and this is her boyfriend, Ethan. She's, he says, Ethan says, Hey Dave, my name is Ethan and I live in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania with my girlfriend, Anne. I've been listening to Dopey for a bit. I started at the beginning and I'm currently on episode 90. See, it's amazing. It's like a time warp. People are, are, in places where Chris is still alive. It's really an amazing thing. I actually, I was on Dopey Nation and somebody was talking about uh, one of my favorite episodes, the structured episode where me and Chris went back and forth 
uh, with a topic and we had Siri set a timer for seven minutes and it's a classically stupid episode. It's, I think it's episode 43. I recommend it. Anyway, back to this. You guys truly reinvented the way podcasts are formatted. Amazing. You are the punks of the podcast world. My girlfriend and I are not afflicted, but we both have been affected by addiction, like most people. My brother was a meth addict for a while, and I just could never understand what was going through his head. At his worst, he would put everyone's cell phone in the freezer, unplug all electronics, and claim that the voices were telling him to kill his whole family. I feel like voices are telling me to kill my whole family, too. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Uh, You know basic meth stuff. After listening to Dopey, I am able to understand my brother and the struggle he faces on a daily basis. He has been clean for some time now and attends a 12-step program. I think everyone could benefit from listening to Dopey. Amazing. I have been showing my girlfriend Dopey, and she loves it. She thinks it is hilarious and extremely impactful. We were listening to episode 86, I think, and you asked Chris something like, oh, this is sad. And you asked Chris something like, I hope, this isn't sounding like a question, I said to Chris, I hope we can do this podcast forever. And then Chris replied with, yeah, as long as one of us doesn't die. And we both started to tear up. It's crazy how it feels like we know you guys so well, but we've never met. It was after this episode that I convinced Anne to cover Good So Bad. She is an incredible musician, and she can recognize a powerful song when she hears it. So here is a copy attached below. Thank you so much for creating this space that people can come and not feel alienated by their afflictions. Keep it up. We will be listening to you the whole way. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. And um, they sent a video of this woman doing good so bad. So I'm going to put that on Patreon too. So there's a lot of stuff that's going to be on Patreon. I'm going to play that good so bad. But this reminds me of a few things. First of all, send in an email. Send in a voicemail, the dopey podcast at gmail.com. Send it, send it, send it. Um, Ethan and Annie, if you want socks, send me your address. But you're not going to listen to this episode for years. So when you hear this episode, if I still have socks, you get some. And DopeyCon 3 is happening. It's happening. I don't know where and I don't know when. I wanted to say May, but Ray was like, May is too soon. Everyone's like, May is too soon. What do you guys think? Send me an email about DopeyCon 3. When do you guys think DopeyCon 3 should happen? I have no idea. I always want everything to happen really quickly. Anyway, stay strong, Dopey Nation. I hope you're great, and fucking toodles for Chris. Just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad I want to be good so bad, so bad Yeah, I want to be good so bad But bad desire is all I've ever Take a dive just to show all of these people what
what it means to be alive but i want to be good so bad i want to be good so bad so bad yeah i want to be good so bad but bad desire is all i've ever shadows getting smaller and smaller and it's high noon where I stand oh my shadows getting smaller and smaller but it's high noon where I stand and I wonder So I